Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We've gone proper left field today, haven't we, Alina? Oh, totally. But this is good. This could be good. We're very excited, actually, because uh, we're going out of the box a little bit with this one. So we've got with us John White Greenlee, who's a medievalist and cartographic historian. His current project is looking at the cultural history of eels in England between the 10th and 17th century. And today we're going to be talking about exactly that, medieval eels. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. I, I always enjoy talking about medieval eels. This is brilliant. Uh, I just have to get one thing out of the way before we start this. Little Miss East London is the greatest place on earth. How many jelly deals have you consumed in your lifetime? None. You it's failed. disgusting. Fail. <laughs> why, why would any East Londoners want to just know? It's, it's the name as well. It's not exactly like, mm, come eat me. <laughs> it's jelly. It, it, it's sort it's sort of more a, a tourist thing at this point, isn't it? In, yeah. in East London? Uh, it's got to be. We just laugh at them. Um, we'll probably get to them as a food source at some point today. Uh, so you're looking between the 10th and 17th centuries, aren't you? Uh, so how did you come to the subject of eels? By accident, really. Um, as you, you mentioned in your opener, I'm a cartographic historian by training. So I sort of think tend to... So most of the time thinking about the ways that people understand the world around them and then reproduce it in maps. Uh, and I was looking at maps of London from the 17th century, uh, not looking for eels, but I saw eels. So there were these ships on the Thames labeled eel ships, Dutch eel ships. And they were the only um, thing that had a label that wasn't a really big civic monument. Like everything else is like the Tower of London or... Um, London Bridge or something like that that can't like pick up anchor and sail away and so I wondered why those ships these eel ships were on the map um, and sort of labeled like that and it seemed like it should be a pretty easy question to get to the bottom of and then it turned out not to be um, and I didn't know anything at all about eels when I started and now four years later or so I know quite a lot about eels but it took me about that long to sort of um, reconstruct the sort of history of of eels in England up to that point to figure out why they were so important that they showed up on these maps. So why have you zoomed in on the medieval period? Well, I am a medievalist also by training. Um, And so this was work that I was doing as part of my, uh, my doctoral dissertation. It wound up being my doctoral dissertation. Um, So sort of started looking at medieval eels and then sort of eels in early modern England and London as well. Um, So it's, 
that part at least is sort of in my wheelhouse. The eels were not when I started, but the medieval period is sort of where I tend to look for most things. It's a bit like you, Alex, really, at the end of the day. You start with your World War I stuff, and then you find this tiny little bit of evidence. You're like, what is this? And it turns into something extremely explosive. Historian rabbit holes. It's so how are, all the best stuff is done. It really is. You know, those, those moments where you find a little thread of something in an archive or on a map that doesn't make sense, that stands out because it's different. And you ask why, and then you sort of start pulling on that thread a little bit, and um, you wind up sort of everything sort of unravels in front of you over time and then you wind up with enough hopefully enough thread to you know sew something different out of it if i can really torture that metaphor to death because <laughs> you put this in your notes and i'm really interested how this comes about so how did people pay their rent in the medieval period and where do eels come into all of this yeah so this is one of after sort of I started getting anti eels. This is one of the first things that really caught my attention about it. Um, so in uh, <clears throat> medieval England and especially early medieval England, there are, there's not a lot of hard currency. People don't have a lot of money in their pockets. It just hasn't been printed yet. And so if you're a medieval landlord and you're collecting rent from your peasants, um, a lot of times rather than getting it in money because they don't have it, you're taking it in kind. So, um, so in grain or honey or eggs or something like that. But uh, one of the biggest sources of in-kind rent was eels. Um, there are just huge numbers of eels being paid in rent in early medieval England. In the end of the 11th century, there's more than half a million eels that I have records of. And I know that there's more than that, but half a million eels plus being moved around England every year just in terms of property rent. And uh, that's a lot of fish. And so that really kind of caught my attention. But um, one of the really interesting things about that is that uh, as, uh, as over the, you know, between the 11th and the 12th centuries, um, coinage becomes more readily available. They start printing more and more of it. Uh, and most in-kind rents disappear over the 12th century, but eel rents hang on for a lot longer. There are still huge numbers of eels being paid in rent up through the Black Death in the mid-14th century, which seems to be when that more or less stops as a as a really important part of kind of um, rural economies. So all of a sudden, it's that a, it's weird a, little... Sorry. <clears throat> all of a sudden, that weird little annotation on a map has become a really valuable boat, hasn't it? Yeah, no, it it did, and you know, so the 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 ships on the on the map are sort of an end product of this long reliance on eels as a as a sort of food staple that goes back, you know, at least to the Romans probably. Um, you know, Bede talks about eels in multiple places in his ecclesiastical history, and they're sort of all over the place. Um, yeah, and so you know, part of what's happening with those ships is you get to London in the early 17th century and the city's grown so large that it's outstripped its ability to sort of fish eels locally and supply itself and so they're having to import them from the from the dutch those are dutch eel ships um and they've been doing it for a while at that point but by the by about 1700 or excuse me 1600 the ships become so important that they sort of become uh, a sort of civic monument right like like the tower of london and that's getting labeled on these maps so yeah so that's the end product of a really long history that includes these rents Eels and religion, how are these two connected? Well, 
Eels don't go to church much. Um, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so, you know, so they're, I guess they're, they're, they're a ripe source for uh, conversion, but um, no, this is one of the reasons why eel rents um, were popular, I think, and stayed, uh, stayed viable longer than other kinds of in-kind rents. So a lot of the really big eel rents and by big here, I mean like, you know, 50 or 60,000 eels being paid annually to, to various monasteries. A lot of these were going to monasteries, um, to big landholding monasteries like Ely um, or Ramsey or Peterborough, a lot of Finland monasteries, especially, um, but other ones too, all sort of all over the country. And they were almost all due right at the start of Lent. Um, so in the spring sometime. And this had to do with the fact that, so Lent is this period where you're not supposed to eat meat, right? There's a four, 40 days where you're not supposed to eat meat. And the reason you're not supposed to eat meat is because uh, meat reminds you of sex, um, sort of meat of, of animals, animals that obviously reproduce sexually. Um, Thomas Aquinas says, this reminds you of sex. You're not supposed to think about sex during Lent, so don't eat meat. But fish are okay because um, fish don't obviously reproduce sexually most of the time they're they have eggs but um but eels are even better because the medieval perception of eels was that they reproduced asexually that there was no sex at all involved in eels um and this has to do with the fact they have this really fascinating life cycle where they're born all the eels in in england um are born probably in the sargasso sea out in the middle of the atlantic um and then they they come to england or europe or wherever they're going um, and they grow up and then they go back to sea to mate and die. But for most of their lives um, in sort of uh, on land or, or sort of in fresh water, they are uh, technically juveniles. They don't have um, developed reproductive organs. Those don't develop until right before they mate to die, mate and die. And so, uh, so the, the question about how eels reproduce was something that really bothered people from the classical period onward. Aristotle um, dissected eels and tried to figure out where they mate, but they, you know, they mate out at sea where nobody can see them. They don't have reproductive organs. And so he and a bunch of other people sort of came to the conclusion that they must reproduce asexually. He thought Aristotle thought they came out of the mud, sort of sprang out of the mud. Plenty of the elder thought that maybe they rubbed on rocks and like the little flakes of skin that came off, like grew with the bigger eels. Um, but, Nobody really knew where or how they mated. And so the idea was that they probably reproduced asexually. And that makes them a great food for Lent because it's not just a, it, it's a food that has nothing at all to do with sex. And so, so that makes it perfect. So there's lots of eels in the water um, in medieval England, a lot of them. Um, and they're a fish that is useful for sort of theological reasons. And so these rents, um, that would do especially to monasteries um, are sort of uh, fulfilling the very particular need that these these monks have um, to go throughout Lent without eating meat. And then there's, by the time you get to the early part of the, or the, I'm sorry, the middle of the medieval period, there's about a third of the year dedicated to these kind of fish days where you're not supposed to eat meat. And so having a rent of eels is really useful because it sort of provides you with a staple of food that you can eat on throughout the year um, and stay sort of in bounds as far as your, your theology goes. So we've already mentioned eating them. How did people catch and eat eels in the medieval period? Right. So there's a bunch of ways you can catch them. <coughs> Excuse me. And that 
that hasn't changed a whole lot, actually. People still catch eels in roughly the same way as they did a thousand years ago. Um, so you can catch them by line or you can spear them. Um, probably the most common way of catching them is in, is in traps. Um, you can sort of, at weirs or dams especially, you sort of funnel the, the stream down to a, a, to a point where the, the eels sort of swim into a, a trap or a fike net where they can swim in but have trouble swimming back out. So these sort of passive ways of catching eels are, are the most effective because uh, you can catch a lot of them and it's, you just set the trap and walk off. Um, so those are some of the, the most common ways of catching eels. You can also, um, there's a, sorry, there's several mentions, um, in, in sources of stomping after eels. And I think this is where you're sort of, um, getting a bunch of people and, and stomping up a river or a Creek and driving the eels towards nets. So that's a bit more active. Um, and then there's a bunch of ways you can eat them. Um, so most of the rents that were being paid to, to monasteries and, and other landlords were paid in um, in salted and preserved eels. <coughs> so they're most likely caught in the fall. Eels migrate downstream in the fall. And so those are sort of the biggest and fattest ones. And those are the ones that were due to for rent. So you catch them in the fall and you uh, brine them and then smoke them in a cold smoking process that leaves you with uh, meat that's um, really sort of hard and, and, and doesn't taste great, but will last a really long time. Um, and so those are the eels that were being paid in rent in the spring. So you can, you can smoke them like that. Um, but then there's a bunch of other recipes for eels, for fresh eels, um, some really basic uh, you know, sort of cut them into, into rounds and, and throw them in a, in a pan. Um, eel stews and eel pies are really popular. Um, and uh, then there's some really complicated uh, and sort of fancy ways of cooking eel. The most fancy is probably a French recipe called the reversed eel, where you take your eel and fillet it, so take the bones out, and then uh, turn it inside out and fill the inside with um, with all kinds of filling, whatever you've got for filling. So uh, it's breadcrumbs and fruit and other meats and things. And then you tie that back up and cook the whole thing in red wine. Um, so the, the ways of preparing eels runs a real gamut from, uh, from really basic to fairly complicated. Um, and all kinds of people ate eels. I've mentioned uh, monks in, the, in their monasteries were eating a lot of eels and they're mostly eating this sort of preserved eels, but um Common people ate eels, nobles ate eels, kings ate eels. There's a lot of records of uh, of royal feasts ordering huge numbers of eels, 10, 20, 30,000 eels at a time for like feasts at Christmas or other points in the year. Um, and so it's a fish that sort of everybody ate um, in one way or another, um, kind of throughout the year. Did you ever see that YouTube video of that man trying to catch eels with Coca-Cola? Oh, we're sort of pouring it into the hole, I think? Yeah. Uh, I have. I have. I don't understand it. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure what's going on there, other than I guess eels don't like uh, carbonated drinks, maybe? I don't know. Um, it's literally, he's pouring this, um, for people who haven't seen it, go onto YouTube, he's literally pouring Coca-Cola into this, like, hole in the ground. And out <laughs> comes this eel, a little bit like... Um, you know when they used to tame eels with the with the flute and it's kind of like coming out of the ground and then he just grabs it and throws it into a bucket. It's really weird. Just yeah, I have 
<laughs> I had there's a couple of videos like that, and it's I guess it's a, it's a way of fishing eels that I'm not really familiar with, uh, and certainly not one that would have been available to medieval people either. Um, but you know, my, I guess it's the, uh, the the they don't care for the CO2 because it makes it hard for them to breathe, and they pop on out and you grab them. Um, yeah, I, I guess the one of the things to draw from that is that eels are what I mostly focus on eels in medieval England and Europe, but you know, eels are a food source for people and have been for a really long time all over the world. There's eels on most continents, um, not, not South America, not Antarctica, but the other ones, certainly. Um, and anywhere there are eels, there are people eating eels. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I just, I'm not sold on them. Uh, despite all the lovely recipes and stuff, I'm still like, no. Uh, so, apart from using them to pay rent and eating them, are there any other ways that eels appear in medieval history apart from food? There are. There's quite a lot, actually. Um, especially in England. The English sort of eat, as I said, a huge number of eels. There's the numbers I'm talking about, the you know, 500,000 eels are is rent well that's just rent that's the rent you're paying on a lot of times that's the rent you're paying as a fisherman to fish more eels that you're going to eat or sell for other reasons so um they're eating just a huge number of of eels and uh and one of the consequences of this is that eels show up in a lot of sort of other avenues of cultural production right they show up in art and in literature and uh, in language and metaphor and, and toponyms and family names and all kinds of places. Um, there's a, especially in England, there's a real connection, I think, between um, identity, sort of identity as an English person, right? And, and eels. There's a lot of instances where people are using eels as a metaphorical stand-in for uh, sort of a personal metaphorical stand-in or one for sort of um, for English people more broadly or England more broadly. There's, um, guy named Thomas Bradwardine, who was briefly the Archbishop of Canterbury, but died in the Black Death um, so in 1348. He, before, a little before he died, he wrote a very short book on uh, how to train your mind on, on memory practices. And medieval memory is all about mnemonics. It's about, um, you know, assigning mental pictures to words so that you can sort of imagine the picture to remember the word. And so he writes this book about memory practice and he gives you towards the end of it. He sort of gives you a big example sentence to help 
you sort of practice the, the tools he's given you. And he walks you through the sentence. And the sentence is about the English king attacking the Scottish city of Berwick. And he walks you through the sentence one word at a time. And for each word, he gives you a, a list of possible um, mnemonics that you might use to help you remember the word. Um, and, and usually he gives you four or five because uh, mnemonic practice is a personal practice and has to do with what's in your head. So he's trying to give you things that you can use personally. So for like king, the word king, he says, all right, so if you know a king like I do, like because he's Thomas, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. If you know a king like I do, then you can think about that guy. If you know somebody whose name is king, that would work. somebody who acts like a king or dressed like a king at Halloween or something like that. So he gives you a bunch of different examples. But when he gets to England, he says, uh, to remember England, think about an eel. You think about the king holding an eel. And it's the only one he gives you. Um, to, uh, and he doesn't think you need anything else, that you should be able to make this connection between England and eel, and that's all you need. Uh, and I really, that's probably one of the last examples of this. It's a very sort of medieval, this sort of connection between eels and identity is a more medieval issue than an early modern one. But I really like that one because it's very explicit about the fact. It's like, it's the only thing you need. England equals eels. Um, but they're in, they're in art. There's eels in the, in the bio tapestry and in, um, I show up on church walls a lot on parish churches. A lot of uh, medieval parish churches in the 13th century onward have um, images of St. Christopher on one of the walls. And in many, many cases in England, especially um, these get drawn with eels in the water and on a handful of instances, uh, St. Christopher, rather than holding a staff, which he normally does, is holding an eel spear. And this is something that's very unique to England. There are this uh, sort of idea of Christopher as an eel fisherman doesn't show up um, on the, on the continent. It's just an English issue. So the eels appear in a whole bunch of places. Like I said, they're eating a ton of them. And so that sort of spills over into a lot of other avenues of, of you know, thought and identity and, and, and cultural production. We've touched on this already, but can you tell us a bit more about it? Because eels, as you've mentioned before, they were used in trade, weren't they? Yeah, there's um, quite a lively trade in eels, really. Um, and it's a little bit hard to get a, a sense of the um, sort of that, the outlines of it. Um, because there are these, there, there are these eel rents. Um, and, and that's pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, but it's a little bit harder to see where, uh, eels are being traded, but there are most of the major cities in England have um, have uh, sort of taxes, import taxes, uh, lists of import taxes. You can see where they're charging for for eels, for for um, tariffs, and and uh, and other sort of import taxes. Um, so there are eels moving around the country, other than in rent. Um, you know, one of the, one of the places where this shows up actually is in um, it, it, places where it goes wrong, where where people where a business transaction doesn't work out the way it should, and people sue each other. Um, so there are a number of instances of people, uh, you know, having contracted to to buy you know eight or ten thousand eels from a merchant somewhere, and then it doesn't work out, and so they they sue to get their money back. Um, so there are eels moving about the country quite a lot. Um, and then as, as London starts to, to grow, especially sort of after, 
after sort of recovers from the starts to recover from the Black Death in 1348, um, a lot of that trade begins to center more and more on London. As people move to London, uh, they're used to eating eels out in the country where they're coming from, and they move to London and they want to keep eating eels. Um, but as the city grows, like I said, sort of grows past its ability to support itself from you know, the Thames and the Fleet and and, and other local rivers. And so, uh, and so has to start importing eels. Some of these are coming from the countryside, um, you know, in, in, in wagons from the fens and places like that, but these are mostly uh, dead eels, not live ones. Um, and starting in the mid 15th century, the Dutch who had been importing um, dead and preserved eels in barrels, starting in the mid 15th century, they start importing eels live eels in these in these ships um so the ships that i saw on those maps on the thames in the 17th century those are uh basically big floating aquariums right the holds of the ships are uh, watertight containers and they're filled with eels and then they have sort of holes in the side very small holes in the side of the ships that let water flow in and out so you get a change of water and so they're Starting in maybe the 1470s or so, the Dutch began to bring over these shipfuls of live eels that they then park in the middle of the Thames, and they're they're selling. So if you want uh, live eels in London, most of the time you're going to head out to one of these ships, um, and they'll fish out, uh, you know, uh, however many pounds of eels you're looking for, and then you buy them and you go back home. Um, so. It uh, as London begins to expand and grow, it becomes a, a bigger and the sort of import from the continent becomes more and more important. Um, and again, this sort of I think gets you to the point where in in 1600 these uh, these ships begin showing up on maps, and not just on maps of London. They also begin to show up in in plays and in some other places. Um, so uh, so they're sort of by that point clearly become a real cultural landmark. Those, those ships stay there um, until the 1666, I think. Yeah, 1666, at which point during one of the Anglo-Dutch wars, they get kicked off the Thames, and they get invited back about 15 years later. And then uh, from that point on, those uh, Dutch eel ships stay there in London selling eels, selling live eels in these boats until 1938. The last one leaves right before World War II. So it's this really long, fascinating history of of trade in eels, um, and especially trade with the with the continents from the from the Dutch. Um, that like you said earlier, sort of pulling at this one question about what are these? I don't understand what these eel ships are doing on on these maps. Sort of led to so it's it's been a really it's a really fun um, rabbit hole of, of history, as you as you said earlier. So what about the modern period? How are they viewed now? Because I mean, like, I've just mocked Alina for not eating jelly deals in East London, but I, I honestly don't think outside of East London people are, are that keen. Yeah, uh, that, that's the case here in the United States as well. We don't really eat eels. It's not part of our, our sort of popular culture. Um, uh, we don't eat nearly as many of them. They're not, not as big a part of the diet, not as big a part of the culture. And I think for a lot of people... Um, eels are are kind of weirdly repulsive. They're they're a bit like snakes, and they're slimy, and they're kind of gross. I tell you um, what it is for me. They're the two little bad henchmen <laughs> in Little Mermaid. That was my childhood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and so and that's like I talked about how in the medieval period eels show up in sort of all kinds of avenues of cultural production, and 
and they're usually pretty positive. And at this point, they're not, right? You get the, like the eels in the Little Mermaid uh, or the shrieking eels in the Princess Bride. Um, when eels show up in, in movies or, or books at this point, usually it's the, so it's sort of the, they're either evil, like Flotsam and Jetsam in the Princess Bride, or they're repulsive, um, intentionally repulsive, like the eels in uh, the Ten Drum. Um, which is a, a movie that turns a lot of people off the eels, the scene where they're sort of fishing with a dead horse head. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that I found in my research is that this has led historians to think about eels in earlier periods only through a negative lens. Um, that when we see references to eels in literature or art or things, the, the impulse is to look for how that is negative. Um, and so to sort of, um, to, to read, to read the past through the through a modern lens. And so the, a really nice example of this is um, John Moore, who was Thomas Moore's father had this uh, fairly famous quote, um, and you'll you can still see it on the internet sometimes too. Um, he's talking about uh, the fact that um, picking a wife is a really uh, sort of um, it's a bit of a gamble, uh, and he says that uh, that picking a, a wife is a bit like reaching your hand into a bag full of snakes and eels um, at a ratio of like seven snakes to one eel. So so a lot of snakes, very few eels, and then hoping you pull the eel out, and. This has traditionally been, which, which I think nobody really wants to do that either way, but this has traditionally been read as just an entirely negative comment, right? That like, that it's a dangerous proposition choosing a wife because you might get bitten by, like you might pick a, a serpent and that's bad. But like, you, even if you don't, you just wind up with an eel and that's bad too. And that's been the traditional reading of, of this, this, this quote of his, but I think he's, it's entirely possible to read that a very different way. So more is coming out of a, a, a culture that really values eels that, that, that eat a lot of eels and have them as sort of a part of their daily lives in a lot of senses and, um, and uses them metaphorically in all kinds of uh, positive and negative ways. So it's entirely possible that people in Moore's day would look at that and say, Oh, well, like there's real value in, in, in pulling an eel out of a bag. You get an eel and that's great. Um, and, so that's one of the, the issues that sort of our modern um, distancing from eels has caused us to, I think, misread how they're, how they were viewed and thought of and, and used in the, in the past. Um, and it has, it has other effects as well. So eels are a critically endangered species at this point. Um, they are under threat from climate change and from habitat change. Um, and pollution and all kinds of things. And they are currently the like, the most smuggled animal on earth in terms of both monetary value and, uh, and sheer numbers. Um, so the, there's a black market trade of baby eels when they come into, I, I mentioned earlier that they, uh, they're born in the Sargasso Sea and they come to land. And when they get to land, they're, they're what are called glass eels. Um, so they're maybe, Oh, sort of as long as your hand, maybe, and and translucent. They're really cool. You can see all the way through them, so you can see their 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 bones and their blood and everything. Um, but there's a like it's a, it's a 
between the estimated three and five billion dollar a year trade in these glass eels to uh, to China, where um, eels are are a really popular dish in China and Japan and, and other Asian countries. And so uh, people catch these these eels in huge numbers and then smuggle them usually in bags and suitcases um, to China. And then they're grown in ponds there and then sold in uh, in sold in Japan and butchered there. And it's often shipped around the world. It's, it is sometimes the case that if you buy an eel, like if you buy unagi uh, in the United States, that it's an eel that was caught maybe in Spain and then shipped to China and grown there and then shipped to Japan and butchered there and then shipped to wherever you're eating it. Um, so eels are under threat from a whole bunch of, of directions. And it's often very difficult for scientists to get people interested in saving eels because our um, sort of cultural understanding of them is that they are gross and weird. And, you know, the, we think about the eels from the little mermaid. Um, and so that's a real, that's a real problem. Um, you know, eel numbers have declined by about 90% in the last 50 years. It's just been an enormous drop off. Um, and it's hard to get people interested in that. So, you know, I do a lot of work on on Twitter and 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 other places trying to make eel history sort of um, interesting. There's a lot of really weird bits about it, and because we don't um, have much to do with eels generally, a lot of sort of the ways that the medieval people interacted with eels seem odd to us. And so, I try to sort of highlight these and make them funny and get people interested in thinking about sort of humans intertwined history with eels and you get people thinking about the fact that they have a history with this fish that goes back a really long way. Um, and that I think goes away towards making the fish um, a bit, making them sort of care more about the fish and think more about it as well, maybe if it's been part of our past, we want to have it sort of continue on as part of our future. So I think there's a real, there's real value for, for historians, I think in being able to take the work that we do, um, even really from very far ago, and and say, okay, well, this is why it matters now. This is this is why you should be thinking about eels, um, not just because it's a sort of an odd these sort of odd tangents of history, but because it, there are places where this connects to the modern world. These eel ships were on the Thames until 1938. Um, our our past with the fish is not as far gone as you might think it is. And it matters for how we live in the world in the present moment. John, thank you so much for joining us. That was so interesting. I found that absolutely fascinating talking about medieval eels and especially what's happening with them today. I mean, like you said, I find them a little bit gross and slimy and weird, but to be honest, no, you kind of changed me a little bit. I feel really sad for these poor little eels. That's a good first step. I think, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're a really fascinating animal. They're a really important part of the, um, of the sort of natural ecology. And I hope that we can all sort of move forward with eels, continue moving forward with eels in the world with us. So I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Join us tomorrow because we will have a special edition with Sam Pilling talking about recreating the moon landings. He's an award-winning director and he's got a really interesting story to tell. And Matt Bone managed to talk him onto History Hack, so don't miss out on that one. 
Join us on Monday when Christian Jennings will be with us to talk all about his new book, which looks at SS massacres in Italy and one in particular, and the hunt for justice and how justice was never served. So don't miss out on that one. It's a really tragic tale, and uh, we get quite angry discussing whether or not anyone paid for their crimes. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 